Good morning. My name is Wes McCain. I'm the senior pastor and one of the elders here at Cross Point Baptist Church. I want to thank you for joining us this morning as we open up God's Word together. Um, just by way of note, there's a little uh, uh, picture of the, the, uh, the building, the church sanctuary on the back table back there, and we want to send um, the Stevens off with a little uh, uh, kind of reminder of their time here. So if you're a member of Crosspoint, if you would go back and just sign that picture for them, I know that that would be a sweet gift and help them remember the time that they've had here. Uh, and so if you would do that after the service. Uh, and if you're new here at Crosspoint, if this is your first time that you've gathered with us, uh, Crosspoint Baptist Church has this one mission and motto together. And if you're a member here, I would love for you to join me in saying that, is that Crosspoint Baptist Church exists to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and for the glory of God. That's why we do what we do here, everything. And a couple ways, uh, members, that we need help in making disciples is we need help in making disciples in our children's ministry. Praise God that God has given us lots of children. I don't know if you think that that's a praise. That is a praise. It's a great thing to have lots of children here. And we have lots of them. And we need help in a few different areas, from our Sunday school to our extended session to our VBS. We need volunteers. We need people to help out in that. And let me just be very clear. We don't believe in babysitting. We believe in disciple-making. And that's what all those things are, is that we have an opportunity. We have been given children to be stewards of them, to teach them the gospel truths, to make disciples so that they would go on, and they would make disciples, and they would go on, and they would make disciples. And so we don't believe in babysitting here. That's not our job. There's daycares all around this city. We believe in making disciples. So every part of our campus, whether it be VBS, Sunday school, extended session, whatever it may be, it's about making disciples, helping children learn to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. If you would be willing to help, we need people to help us make disciples. It's not just the elders, it's not just the deacons, it's not just the staff here. We need every single person, every single member to say that is what we're here for, is to make disciples. If you would, please, if you're willing to help in VBS, would you sign up on the back and be a volunteer there? If you're willing to help in Sunday school or an extended session, would you please contact the church office, contact myself, contact Sherry, and let us know we need help in making disciples, because that's what we believe here. Once you've uh, found your Bibles, and I hope you have your Bible, if uh, you would turn to Exodus chapter 23, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 19. Again, if you're a visitor here, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. I've made some promises that we're going to start speeding up here in the next couple of weeks. Um, as you know, I'm full of empty promises. Uh, so uh, I, I, we're, we're working our way slowly through the book of Exodus. And so, but I, I think we will start to, um, to uh, speed up. And now let me go ahead and give you a heads up. In upcoming weeks, we're going to get to all the tabernacle instructions and all the construction details about the, temp, the curtains and the, uh, the fabrics and the bowls and the basins and stuff like that. Let me just tell you, go ahead and start reading those chapters. Uh, you're going to need to be, like, you're going to basically need to have those memorized because I'm not going to be able to cover every single verse in those chapters of the tabernacle instructions. So if you would, do me a favor and go and read those over and over again, because it'll be helpful for all of us to be on the same page about those. 
But here in Exodus 23, we will be looking at verses 10 through 19. And once you've found your place there, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. It says this, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, uh, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days shall you do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days." at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest, of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in, in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with it, anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a, a young goat in its mother's milk. Let's pray. God, as we do at every single moment of every single of, your li of our lives, we need you so desperately right now. We need your guidance. We need your help as we seek to understand you through your word. So God, by your spirit at work in us, help us see your glory, oh God. Help us see how every single scripture points and leads us to Jesus. God. And so, Father, I pray, help us, Lord, in this endeavor. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Is anybody a creature of habit in here? Anybody a creature of habit? You have a routine, you have a rhythm. You have a set agenda for every single day that it needs to happen just like this. Boom, 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 boom. And when you get out of rhythm, you get out of routine, you get out of habit. The whole day, whole week, whole month, maybe even whole year is messed up for you. Anybody like that, so OCD like that? Like the day is just a wash. And, uh, you know, especially for me, I, I am like that. Like things have to, you know, I sit in a certain place in the morning, I walk... I walk a certain, you know, way in the, you know, in the, throughout the house in the morning. Like, everything has to fall into place like that. But when something happens and the morning is just blown up, maybe a kid gets sick or a kid's been up all night, things like that, everything goes to wash. And I realize, like, okay, you know, you're, like, scrambling. And, like, midway through the day, I'm like, did I take a shower this morning? Anybody ever had that thing happen? Like, everything's going, I don't think I brushed my teeth this morning. Uh, you begin to forget things that actually you usually do every day. Like, I was, did, did I put the, did I, did I put the odor on this morning? How did I forget that? You just realize how a creature of habit you get, and how routines and rhythms are so important to your lives because they they give you balance, they help you with hygiene, um, number of other things, right? And that when we get out imbalanced or out of routine, it really affects us. But routines and rhythms are important because they, they help us to remember things. They help us to do things that we need to do. And what we're going to find out today, just as we look at the text, is we're going to see that 
the Lord's instructions are to provide uh, a rhythm or patterns and balance to Israel as they work, as they rest, as they worship the Lord as His covenant people. That's what this is about. That the Lord is giving them instructions about how, how to keep balance in their life. So He sets them a pattern as they balance all these different things from work, rest, and worship. And what ultimately we're going to see is that God cares about the use of His people's time. It's what He cares about. How they use their time. And ultimately, what we're going to see is that, that in these instructions, God is worthy of Israel's, and I would say our obedience, in the areas of work, rest, and worship. It matters what we do with our time here on this earth. And that's why God gives so clear instructions here about these things. So let's look at the first point, is this, in verses 10 through 12, is that we're going to look, is that God gives instructions about work and rest to his people. Just look at these. For six years you, you shall sow your land and gather in its, in its yield. But in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. So these commands about work and rest, you've probably are, you know that you've heard these before, and you should have heard these before. Because we heard these in the Ten Commandments, right? In Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. We've heard about the Sabbath, and we've heard about work and rest. He's already laid these things out, these commands. And these commands here are undergirded by the Ten Commandments. We've already talked about how everything after the Ten Commandments is kind of like an outworking of the Ten Commandments. And that's what we're seeing here. That these commands and instructions are an outworking of Exodus 28 through 11. But undergirded under these instructions, and undergirded the Ten Commandments about Sabbath rest and things like that, there's something else underneath that is that all those commands and all the instructions that we get about work and rest, it's undergirded by God's own pattern that he set out in creation himself that he established. So what's underneath these instructions? What's underneath the Sabbath command in Exodus 28 through 11? It's that God has set the pattern for our lives. God has set the rhythms that we are to live by. Just listen to what it says in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So under these commands and under these instructions is God's own pattern that he set out from the very beginning of work and rest. That's what God did. And so God's covenant people now are to follow these patterns. They're to follow these rhythms of life, of work, and rest. They're to follow them in regards to the land, in regards to the laborers, and in regards to their own pattern of life. Because this is how we represent God well as His people. We follow patterns that He has set out for us. If Anybody heard the phrase, and I'm sure you have, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Man, I love when people imitate me, unless you're making fun of me. Uh, and so, right, I love when, you know, love when people do the things that I do. And you probably do too. It's, it's a way of flattery, right? And this is a sense is that God wants us to imitate Him. I mean, that's what the Scripture is calling us to, is to be holy because God is holy. And so we 
we represent God well when we follow the patterns and the directions and rhythms that God has given us. And so here's what he says. He says, you are to follow these commands about work and rest in regards to the land. Look at this. They're expected, Israel's expectation is to work. It's a good thing. Is that they're to sow the land and they're to gather from the land for six years. So it's good for Israel to work. It's good for them to do these things, right? To sow and to gather. But there comes a time on the seventh year where they're to give the land a rest from their work. Is that they're to work really hard for six years. Gather, gather the produce, gather the yield, enjoy it. Things like that. But in the seventh year, let the land rest. Well, why does the land need to rest? It says this. It says, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Don't cultivate it, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with the, your vineyard and your olive orchard. Is that we're just getting another instance here. Why should the land rest on the seventh year? It's so that you and the poor and your laborers and even your beast of the field can enjoy the produce of the land that you've cultivated so hard for six years. Enjoy what God has given you. You've worked hard. Enjoy it. Right? And it also just shows that, again, what we've seen already from the book of Exodus, God has a great concern about the poor and the destitute and the needy and even animals, what we've seen so far. And so God cares about these people who are in need. And so let them enjoy the field. God shows this again in the book of Leviticus when he gives them instructions on how they're to reap their field and how they're to, you know, he says, leave a section, don't reap the whole thing. Leave a section so that the poor can come by and take from it and eat from it and enjoy it and be sustained by it, by your fields. God has a great concern over providing for those who cannot provide for themselves, as we see in the gospel, Right? The gospel is about providing something that we cannot provide ourselves, that being salvation in Christ Jesus, right? We can't provide that. We can't, we can't create that salvation. We can't even earn that. And God provides salvation to those who cannot provide it for themselves. And this is how God is, even in here. Rest the land so that it can be a provision for people who cannot provide for themselves. Not only that, are they to rest the land, but they're to rest their laborers too and their oxen. That... It doesn't just extend to the place, but it extends to the people that work very hard. And so God instructs Israel to work six days because it's good to work. It's good for God's people to work. If you remember, originally, Adam and Eve were put into the garden to do what in the garden? To work and keep it and tend it and cultivate it. It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that they're putting God's good creation to work it. Work is a good thing. And so, just like work is a good thing, also rest is a good thing. Is that they're, all, they're called to work, but they're also called to rest. And to rest on the seventh day. And God instructs Israel to rest everyone. Nobody, nobody you know, you can't just say you're going to rest. But you need to rest your laborers. You need to rest the sojourners. You need to rest the poor man. You need to rest even your oxen on the seventh day. Why should they rest? Well, look what it says at the end of verse 12. Do all this so that they may be, what does your translation say? 
refreshed. Does anybody have refreshed in here? Anybody got something different? Huh? Well, I, I think we can all know and you know, have felt what refreshment feels like, right? You've been out in the sweltering heat all day. Maybe mowing or something like that, or you've been baling hay, or, or whatever it may be, playing baseball outside. And man, you come in to the AC, and you sit in the Lazy Boy or whatever, or the hammock, and you pop open a nice cold uh, Coke, and, uh, and man, you are laying back there, right? And what does that feel like? feels like to be refreshed, right? Oh! Man, that hits the spot right there. AC, man, football game on, on the TV, lazy boy taking a nap. Oh, man, my body is rejuvenated from this, right? Rejuvenation after a hard day's work. It's, it's interesting. We'll see this verse later on in Exodus 31, but listen to what it says. This is about the Sabbath rest, Exodus 31, verse 17. It is a sign forever, that means the Sabbath, between me and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So God is saying, follow this pattern, because rest will bring refreshment and rejuvenation to your workers, right? So that they may continue to work for you. And so that's, that's what they need. Follow these commandments to rest. Because they need to be refreshed for their work. And now, I think this. Kids, can I ask you a question? You being the smartest people in this room. Uh, do you think God ever gets tired like we do? No. God doesn't get tired like, oh man, I worked a hard day. Man, I got to go sit in the lazy boy or in the hammock. Y- y'all think God gets tired like that? No. He's God, right? He's so strong. He never gets weary. He never gets tired. He never falls asleep. His bones and his muscles net. Well, he didn't. I won't get there. Uh, Yeah, going too far. Don't want to have to keep explaining that one. But he never gets tired. And this is what that famous passage in Isaiah says. You may remember this passage. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth, that means even young people, they shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall and be exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Does God get weary? Does God get tired? No. But people, because of sin in this world, because the world is broken, we get tired. We get frail. We get weary. We need rest. We need rest. God doesn't need it, but we need it. And so the problem with us today is that we have, anybody experienced vertigo before? Have you ever raised your hand, vertigo before? And vertigo just causes this imbalance. My grandmother used to have it so bad, just she would get off balance, either go to the left or I'd go to the right, and just could not keep her feet up underneath her. And this, I think, with these commands of work and rest, is that we have a tendency to go to too far to the left 
are too far to the right on these things. And here's the two extremes, the two spiritual dangers that we have from these instructions about work and rest and rhythms and patterns of life. Is The first is this, is that one of the dangers that we get in is laziness. It's one of the dangers of this. Resting too much and not working at all, right? Is that our culture, and some of us could even believe these things, is that what is the least amount of time, energy, work, sweat that I can put in and still get the maximum amount of benefit, financial benefit most of the time, right? That's what people think. How can I do the least amount of work and still get paid the most amount of money, right? Or how can I get out of this job? What, 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 what's a way I can scheme out and find a, find a you know, loophole through this where I don't have to do anything hard? This is a struggle. Idleness is a struggle. Is that we can rest way too much. And that is idleness. And idleness is sinful. It's sinful because it disobeys God's commands just like here. And it doesn't accurately represent God. God is not lazy. God does not rest all the time. He works. And work is a good thing. Paul dealt with this issue in the book of Thessalonians. Just listen to what 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-12 through says. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. And that's a problem with laziness, because when we are lazy and idle, we put the burden on somebody else to take care of us. That's what laziness is. How can somebody else do the work so that I can be a burden to them? But listen to what he goes on to say. It was not because we did, do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not what? Eat. Let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Whew, they're busy at something, but it ain't working. Right? Busy bodies. Now such persons were, we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is the problem with laziness. And we all can have a physical laziness, spiritual laziness in some, some sense. Is that even in our own spiritual lives, we can be lazy. Well, you know, somebody else will do that work. Somebody else will serve in that area. Or, you know what, I don't have to do my own personal devotion. Somebody, somebody will teach me that in Sunday school. Somebody will teach me that in the sermon. You know, I don't really need, I, I get enough of that. I don't have to do my own personal work. There's spiritual laziness we, even within our, our own lives. Are we spiritually lazy? Are we physically lazy? We don't like to work. Work is a good thing. On the other end is that the other danger is we can work too much. And I think that's probably a bigger struggle in our culture and society sometimes. Being a workaholic. Being a workaholic is almost like a badge of honor. That it's a good thing to be a workaholic. Let me tell you this. It's not. It's not. It's not a commendable feature. Is that we have this idea that the more I, the more I work, the more I'll achieve, right? 
And if your ultimate goal in this life is to be rich and successful, then it makes sense to be a workaholic. But if your ultimate goal is to pattern your life after the Lord, then you will work and rest. That's it. So what do you want to do more in your life? Be rich and successful or be more like Jesus? Then we will work and rest. And do we realize that when we, when we overwork, when we're workaholic, we work all the time, we want to achieve and be successful, do you believe that unless the Lord provides, your labor is in vain? That really your labor can't really provide anything for you unless the Lord gives it to you. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the what? House. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in what? Vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in what? Vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. If the Lord does not provide, then our work is in vain. And what we say in being a workaholic is we say, the more I'll work, the more I'll get, the more I'll achieve, the more I'll accrue, the more I'll profit. Unless the Lord gives it to you, you labor in vain. Resting from work is a reminder for us, church, that life is not all about work and success and profit and production. This is actually what should distinguish Christians from the world. Listen to what Bill Gates said in a Time Magazine article. I think this was in 1997. He said this, Just in terms of allocation of time, resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could do on a Sunday morning. He's like, what's the point of me resting when I could work another day and get more money? What's the point of me going to worship when I could be working another eight hours and get more money? It's not really efficient when you think of it. So when you think about it in terms of life is all about money and success and profit and production, then yeah, it makes sense. Sundays are a waste of time to rest. But when your life is about pleasing Him and following the pattern that He has established, then we will work and rest. And that will distinguish us from the world. Our goal is not to become rich and famous and successful. And ultimately, rest demonstrates that we trust God to provide for all of our needs. That's what Israel was doing when it took a day off. I mean, they lived in an agricultural society. To take a day off, that's a big deal. And so, but what they were doing when they took a day off was saying, I'm going to trust the Lord that He's going to provide for my needs even when I take a day off to rest. And that's what we're saying when we rest and when we worship and things like this, saying, I trust the Lord. He's going to provide for all my needs. He's going to provide for these things. He's going to do it. Does your pattern of life right now demonstrate that you ultimately trust God and not your work, not your job, to provide for all your needs? Listen to what Mark Rooker said. He says this, the commandment teaches that the Lord should be sovereign over our time. And in ceasing to work one day a week, we show our faith and offer our praise to the one who is the true ruler of time. We express our belief that ultimately we are not dependent on our own work, 
but that God is sovereign in our lives and our work, and our lives are under His control. That's what we say when we rest. That's what we say when we come here and worship together. And this work and rest themes come together in the gospel, does it not? Is that ultimately our rest is Jesus Christ. Is that He is the one who will bring us into the eternal rest. And that He is actually the one who has accomplished the work on our behalf. He's done the work for us that we so that we can rest in eternity with Him. The rest and work comes in the gospel. So this morning, are you resting in Christ that He is your eternal Sabbath rest? That what He says is actually true in Matthew 11. That His burden is easy and His yoke is light. You truly believe that He has actually done the work for you. That, that, Or are you right now trying your hardest to work and earn things? Maybe your life is wrapped up in profit and production. I would just say this. Cease your vain attempts to work and earn God's favor. Rest in Christ who has done the work on our behalf and who gives us the eternal rest. This is what he says. The pattern of our lives, Christians, is work and rest. And ultimately, God has done the work for us through Christ Jesus. The next that we look at is this, is that Israel is to rest and work, work and rest, but they are also to worship Him. They are to worship Him. And this, looking at verses 14 through 19, but before we jump into 14 through 19, there's actually like a command that we we're given in 13, which seems kind of odd on the surface of it, is that we've been talking about worship, we're about to talk about worship, we just got done talking about Sabbath and rest and things like that, and now he says, pay attention to all that I've said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Where does this come from? Well, it's kind of a weird command in all this. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I, I think the way to put this all together is that what Israel could be tempted to do is to bring to acknowledge or bring recognition to other gods for the produce of their fields or for the production that they've had that, that year or for whatever has been gained by their hard work. And he says, make no mention of their names because they did not do anything for you. Baal, Asherah, didn't do anything for you. They didn't produce any of this stuff for you. I did. I gave these things to you. So don't even mention these things. And don't even try and take the worship, the worship practices of those nations to those gods and bring them over into following me. This is what he gets into. How shall God's people worship him? This is what... He'll discuss in verses 14 through 19. How shall God's people worship Him? What's the appropriate way to worship Him? And what he says is that God gives them feasts and festivals and sacrifices and offerings, that these are the ways and times that Israel is to worship God. As they come together in these feasts and festivals with sacrifices and offerings, they come to celebrate, they come to rejoice, and they come to remember what God has done for them. It reminds me of Thanksgiving dinners or lunch. Anybody have this kind of um, uh, experience uh, where you go to your, or you have a 
a routine that you do every year. You go to your family's dinner table, Thanksgiving dinner, and everybody's got to go around the dinner table and say, what's one thing you are thankful for this year? Anybody ever do that? No? Is it? Okay, so a couple people. Yeah, my mom makes us do it every single year, and did, did not like it as a kid. Did not like it. And so usually it turned out to, you know, a toy that I got that year, something like that, some, you know. And so now we try it with our boys, and it's going about just as you expected. Uh, so, and uh, w- we've tried that. So, but Thanksgiving dinner for us was a time for us to remember what God had did that past year for us so that we wouldn't forget. It's a time for us to rejoice. And man, I don't know about you, but I look forward to our Thanksgiving dinners that we have here on campus where we get to do that same thing. We get to eat together, we rejoice, we fellowship with one another, we get to pass around the microphone and say, I'm thankful that God did this this year. I'm thankful that God did this this year. We're celebrating this, we're rejoicing over this. It's a time to remember, to rejoice over these things. And that this is what they were to do in these feasts and festivals. And that these feasts and festivals or not to be one time a year. There would be to, to be perpetual, ongoing, and regular. They are to regularly keep these feasts to God. Just look at the numbers that are said throughout verses 14, 15. Three times, seven days, in the month of Abib, at the end of the year, three times, over and over again. Which says to me this, is that all these kind of um, time references is here, is that it means... What it seems to be is that God is calling Israel to prioritize their worship of him. That it's not haphazard. It's not like coincidence that, they, oh man, I guess we're going to worship today. No, actually, it's built into their calendar. And every other thing in their life going on actually revolves around their times of worship. And not the other way around. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, if we get to it, we'll, we'll worship, we'll do the feast that day. Or, yeah, 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 if we have an opening over here, we'll make a sacrifice over there. No, what these instructions say is that they are to prioritize their worship three times a year, the month of Abib, at the end of the year, right? It's not coincidence, it's not surprising, it's not, oh, if we've got time to do it, we'll do it. No, they were to prioritize their calendars around these things. And this pattern of perpetual routine worship actually carries over into the New Testament, into the early church. Now, the, the different form of worship is clearly different, but they saw the need to worship together in Acts 2, to daily attend the temple together. That was important. They prioritized worship together. And so there's no category for here for an Israelite who says, Yes, I follow Yahweh. I follow him, but I'm not going to keep the feast. I'm not going to do the festivals. Probably won't do the offerings either. Sacrifices, nah, too bloody, gets too gross. But I follow Yahweh. There's no category for that. There's no category for an Israelite that says, follow Yahweh. Yeah, those feasts and festivals, I don't know anything about them. What actually the Bible says is that that Israelite, who says, I follow Yahweh, but I'm not going to keep the feast, I'm not going to keep the forms that he says to worship me in, that's actually putting a person in hostility towards God. Zechariah 14 is really clear about this, where he says, the nations are to come to Jerusalem and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Egypt is to come to Jerusalem and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And if they don't do it, then God is going to, 
cause no rain to come upon them, basically punish them. So to not keep the feast and festivals and sacrifices and offerings is actually positioning yourself in disobedience and rebellion to God. You're not in a good position. And I think the same can be said in the early church in the New Testament. There was no category for a person who says, I follow Jesus and I follow the Christ in the way and not gather together with worship. Neglecting to prioritize private and corporate worship doesn't place you in a good position with God. As Zechariah 14 says, it actually is a sign of your bad position with God and maybe even a sign of your rebellion against God. Neglecting to prioritize these things is not not a neutral thing to God. Oh, you know, it's no big deal. Yeah, make time for it. Maybe Easter and Christmas. Can can you make time for it those days? Okay, good, good, good. We're we're on good terms. That doesn't seem what Zechariah 14 says, and it doesn't seem what Exodus 23 says. This is why the author of Hebrews warns us. Don't forsake the gathering of worship. And let us consider how to start one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. And I would just say this from an application from Exodus 23, is that they prioritized and were to prioritize the worship of Yahweh through feasts and festivals and offerings. Do we prioritize our worship? Do we prioritize gathering together corporate worship? And do we prioritize private worship, your personal devotions? That's where we do private worship with the Lord. And so do we prioritize those times, or do we say, you know, it's not a big deal, not really a big deal to God. But since the inception of Israel, God has always called his people to prioritize a regular pattern of personal and corporate worship. That's what it is. And in these acts, they're unique and important, these feasts, right? These feasts have significance for them to remind them of certain aspects of who God is and what he's done. You know, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this becomes the Passover for the Christian, and we're reminded that the Passover is is basically fulfilled in Christ, what 1 Corinthians 5 says, is that Christ is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. The Feast of Harvest, this is, you know, becomes the, the Feast of Weeks later on, after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and later on it actually becomes Pentecost for the New Testament church, where they celebrate these things. And they... The feast is recognized as the first fruits of their labor. And now it's Pentecost where we get to celebrate that we're the first fruits of the resurrection, right? This is why Paul uses the language of first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, is that Christ was the first fruits and all those, all those who came after him. That we experience this. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, but we always give God thanks for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The feast of the first fruits is a reminder that, man, look what God has done for us. The feast of ingathering, 
later becomes the Feast of Tabernacles, where Israel, they live in tents to remind themselves of the wilderness journeying. And we're reminded of this in Christ Jesus, is that Jesus is the new tabernacle and new temple, where God's, God's glory and presence dwells. This is why John in 1.14 says this, He came and dwelt among us. It's the word for tabernacle there. So the new and true tabernacle is Jesus Christ himself. All these, they are to celebrate, all these feasts and festivals. And when they come to these feasts and festivals, they are also to give sacrifices and offerings. And that there are acceptable and unacceptable ways to offer and sacrifice to God. If you ever think about a dinner party, is that, you know, there's a dinner party going on, and it's a potluck. Everybody's supposed to bring something. You're given something to, you know, bring. Hey, you got the main dish. Hey, you got the sign, things like that. So let's say you're saying, you, you got the main dish, and you show up empty-handed, and you just tell the host, I just didn't really feel like cooking anything tonight. Uh, that wouldn't be okay, right? Or say, like, I know you told me to bring a turkey, but instead I was driving on the way here, and I saw a piece of roadkill, and so I just went ahead and picked that up. Now, I know that's a Mississippi thing, so please, you know, I don't want to step on any toes. Uh, but, yeah, so that's, those are two things that are unacceptable at a dinner party, right? One, showing up empty-handed, or two, showing up with uh, uh, ooh, uh, something that is not pleasurable or approved of by the host, right? Hopefully, roadkill will not be approved of by the host. And so in these, in these feasts and uh, festivals, they're celebrating. And that there are things that are acceptable and unacceptable as they approach God. Acceptable things are they're to bring the first fruits of their, their produce. Not the second helpings, not the leftovers. The first fruits. And we talked about that last week. But here are a couple ways that, that they can offer unacceptable offerings. First, if they show up empty-handed. It says here that every person shall show up with something to offer, no matter what your status is, no matter how much money you have. You show up with an offering. Second is that he doesn't want any, anything that's offered uh, to be mixed with the unleavened bread. Because blood has life in it, what's considered in Genesis 9, and Israel was not to consume blood. So they can't be mixed and intermingled, the unleavened bread and the sacrifices. Fat is not to remain until the morning, just like the manna wasn't to remain until the morning. And then lastly, and I know it's your favorite verse, probably your life verse, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I'm thinking about getting that one tattooed on my back. And so, um, I'll just go ahead and say, this one's a tough one. Uh, this, this command happens three times in the Pentateuch, in the law, in the first five books. And it's an odd one. Um, it could be referring to some cultic practices where the Canaanites were taking baby goats and taking the mother's milk and boiling them in there as a sacrifice and offering to God. And so that, now they're like, hey, the Canaanites do that. Maybe we should do that to God. Maybe he would like a boiled baby goat. I don't know, maybe. Or it could be, uh, I think what's interesting is that there's something inhumane about that that God does not accept, where the mother's milk is life-giving. And now it's being mixed with something that is related to death. So killing a baby goat in something that is actually representative of life. Mixing death and life right there. But whatever it be, whatever the reason why, God does not want a baby goat boiled in its mother's milk. 
It's inhumane, and it's not an acceptable form of sacrifice. And I would just say this, is that God has acceptable forms of sacrifice, even for us here. Acceptable offering. What Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. I just want to ask us all this. Would God find our thoughts, our actions, our words, our motives as an acceptable offering to Him? That's a question we should ask. Would God find this as an acceptable offering to Him? And, And lastly, these feasts and festivals that they are to be kept, they're not doom and gloom. We might read these and see like, man, God sounds like a killjoy. This doesn't sound like a festival. I've been to a festival before. This sounds really dark and sinister and just boring to be at. doesn't sound like a birthday party or a wedding reception. I would expect happiness and excitement and rejoicing. But that's exactly what these feasts and festivals are supposed to be. Is that Israel is coming with their offerings and saying, praise God, Yahweh has saved us. He saved us out of Egypt. We want to give him everything that we have because he is worthy of all these things. We want to obey him because he is a holy and righteous God. And he is our God and we are his people. And we want to rejoice over what he's done. Is that these offerings and sacrifices and festivals, they follow three R's. Three R's. They are to be regular. They are to be right. And they are to be filled with rejoicing. That's what these festivals are to be about. They're to be done regularly, they're to be run rightly, and they're to be done with rejoicing. This is what Deuteronomy 16 says. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, and all within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands, so that you will always, you, you will be always joyful. The feast and the festivals, the worship of God should be done with an attitude, not of obligation, not of chore, but of joy. It's a joyful thing to worship God. And so I would just ask us this. When we come to do corporate worship together, when you do your private worship at home and personal devotion, is there joy in these things? Because God is not trying to steal your joy. That's what the enemy does. God is trying to increase your joy through obedience to his rhythms that he has set in place. God not only cares about our act of worship, he cares about the heart of our worship. Joy. And ultimately, we have the greatest reason to be joyful. Because we've been saved through Christ Jesus, whom all these festivals, all these Sabbaths, all these offerings, all these sacrifices, this is who they come to. They come to Christ This is what they all point to. Exodus 23 points to Jesus because this is what Paul says in Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Therefore, don't let anyone pass judgment on you about food, drink, or with regard to festivals, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What are these festivals about? What are these feasts about? What are these these offerings and sacrifices about, they're pointing our eyes to who they are all about. Jesus, whom all these things find their substance in. It's all about Jesus. This morning, church, we have the greatest reason to rest and worship 
because God has set the pattern for us and we want to follow his pattern. Church, we have the greatest reason to worship and rejoice because Christ has saved us and all these things point to him. Will you do that this morning? Will you pattern your lives after the Lord and will you rejoice and worship because all these things point to him? Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Help us to focus our eyes on Jesus, who is the substance of all these things. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.